You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Randy, thanks for joining me, man. Good to have you on. Thanks so much. Uh, this is fun to be here. Cool. Hey, would you mind giving a background story of you know, yourself and your work? Uh, let the audience know where you're coming from. Certainly. So um, I've been doing software for way longer than I care to admit, uh, you know, 20, 20 something years. Um, and now I'm at a company called Avoxy. Um, we do telephone systems for around the world. Um, kind of, you know, interesting to deal with foreign governments and their telephony regulations. Um, but a lot of the stuff that we do is, you know, pretty cool working on the Google Cloud, Docker, Go, you know, kind of some, some of the cutting edge technologies we try and be what I, what I call forward leaning. Um, but I, I've done this for a while. Um, I used to work at a company called Vocalocity, um, now goes under the name Vonage Business, handful of patents, um, you know, doing some cool engineering stuff. Now I am the VP of engineering, which means I get to do some architecture and I got to do with the sucky stuff like budgets and, you know, the, the not fun parts of this <laughs> business too. And you, so you had to take the path of, you know, kind of leave the code and, and go manage. Did you, did you choose that or it just happened? I have this conversation all the time. Like how much do you get to code? You never get to code, you know, why'd you go the management route? You know, sometimes people just want to stay engineers. Um, so years ago, um, when I was at, uh, at Vocalocity, we talked about one of our board members, um, came and, and talked to the engineering leadership and, and kind of said, you know, as, as a rank and file developer, you should probably be spending like 90% of your time writing code or individual technical contribution. Um, and then as you get beyond that, you know, into a team lead, maybe it's 75% engineering management, maybe you're down to 60, 50%, all the way up to the CTO, you still need to be doing this technical stuff. You know, if maybe it's not writing code, but it's executing test plans or architecting systems or really being on the technical side. And he, he was advocating that when he still needed to be like 10% all the way at the CTO level. Um, and that was, I thought, pretty cool. Now, we were a company of like 100 people. So it wasn't, well, this wasn't like the CTO of Cisco or Google where you've got tens of thousands of people you're managing. Um, and, and I thought that was kind of interesting that, you know, you could still go through the management ranks and still be very technical. Um, and so for a large portion of my career, I've kind of bounced back and forth between this architect role where it's purely technical with the people relations of try, you know, convincing teams as to why they want to build it that way versus the more um, being in the management side and really doing the mentoring and the uh, kind of the team building aspect of 
you know, what's the right roles we need? What's the right composition we need? What's the right mix of the different people we need within the team? Um, and so I, I can't keep, kept bouncing back and forth for a while. And then probably the last four or five years, it's been just straight on the management track, mainly because it's where I, what the companies I've been at have needed. Not necessarily that's what I want to do, because like you said, a lot of engineers, you want to get in, you just want to stay technical. And I, and I think that's great. That's wonderful. But that's not always what the company needs. And so I've ended up in this role where, um, you know, we needed someone to kind of do a little bit of the leadership, a little bit of the team management aspect of it, you know, go out and work with the recruiting team, go out and work with um, some of the product team to figure out what it is. We yeah, need yeah, to do. right on. And uh, but before we started, I, I love this. You, you were talking about how you you uh, instituted uh, team book club and yeah, and that you're you know yeah. doing some some learning that I, I think is is really pertinent. So I'd love if you talk about that. Yeah. So um, I mean, one of the things that we want to at Avoxy we want to recognize is that everyone is not at the end of their career, right? And everyone still has this opportunity to grow and get better and improve themselves. And so we've done, um, it's now it's now called book club. We've done this kind of lunch and learn type thing for uh, probably about six months. We did, um, a, we went through some curriculum about testing in JavaScript, um, the Kent C. Dobbs curriculum, um, which our front end developers really loved. They enjoyed going through that. Um, after we got most of the way through that, our QA engineers made a comment, you know, I'm seeing a whole lot fewer first-time defects, and I'm pretty sure it's because of all of the testing we're doing as a result of going through that. Um, and so that was really great to, to get that feedback. Um, another thing that, you know, we're in the midst of launching a new product, and this is, for a lot of the team members, this is their first software-as-a-service product or the first software-as-a-service product that doesn't have a large operations team to support it. Um, so we have, like, one DevOps engineer, and, you know, he is awesome, but he's only one guy. Um, and so we need to provide him a little bit of support. So we're going through the, uh, the Google SRE book, um, kind of like one chapter a week. You know, everybody read the chapter and then we sit around over lunch and you know, kind of talk about, well, what's that mean to us? And how would we do monitoring or how does our postmortem responses not quite line up with what Google recommends? And should we? Right. Because not every problem is a Google shaped problem. Um, and the team's really responding to that well. And it's one of those, um, in some ways, it kind of bonds the team together, you know, and, and says, you know, hey, you know, we're all going through this together. We're learning together. And that's really good. And then uh, some of our junior engineers have this safe environment where they can say, you know, I don't know what that means. Can, can you explain to me how um, what Google calls the board really relates to what we're doing? And of course, that's, that's Kubernetes, which we use a lot of. But understanding how you know, all the pods and the deployments and the services, everything in Kubernetes fits together. And it's an environment where those junior devs wouldn't have felt comfortable ahead of time really asking those questions. And now it's, it's a venue for us to really kind of share some of the, the things that people might be embarrassed to ask about as well. So. Yeah, yeah, right on. And, and so, I mean, what's everybody learning? I mean, that that's an interesting and and sort of high value, uh, high attention space right now around right. This, this SRE conversation. Um, the Google ecosystem obviously being sort of, I think, central to that, you know, that, that it's, it's started to gain traction because of, of their work. So, you know, what are, what are some of those best practices um, in learning for, for people who haven't, A, haven't read the book, but B, really haven't implemented it in practice? So I, there's a lot of answers to that question. Um, the one thing I think the team has taken the most to so far 
is the SLI, SLO, SLA concept, right? And how that relates to an error budget. So Google talks a lot about as a system staying up, you have a certain amount of errors that are acceptable, right? And 100% uptime is incredibly complicated to get to. Um, they make the comment that every additional nine you put on the end of your uptime is usually an order of magnitude more cost. Um, and at some point, some business that doesn't make sense in other than the people who make health devices and nuclear power plants, right? So some people, 100%, that's great. Phone companies, AT&T established five nines as our target, but um, for some businesses, it's not as high. And five nines means, if I recall correctly, seven minutes of downtime uh, per year. It's, it's between so. six and seven, yeah. It, it's not a lot of downtime yeah. that you get every year. Right, I mean, just put that in your head, right? Because like Gmail has not achieved that. <laughs> Slack definitely hasn't achieved that. You know, thank God, right? Because we all need to have lunch once in a while. But how much would you have to pay? How many ads on Gmail right. would you have to look at for them to achieve five nights? Right? right. You know, how much would my monthly Slack bill be if they were giving me a five nine service? And, and that's kind of the, the intentional trade off. And that's what we've really kind of taken to heart is the error budget, right? For us to be down for six minutes a month or for us to have you know, X um, hundreds or thousands of calls that fail, which if any of our customers are listening, we don't want any of your calls to fail. But the reality right. is a few of them might. But we also don't want to charge you $1,000 per call. Exactly. You know, so, and so how do we get to those trade-offs and keeping track of how many errors you have in a month and then converting that into a, you know what, we've hit our error budget for the month. We've got to stop making feature changes and really focus on the quality of the product or just not make changes at all. Right. Sure. Sure. So it's like a, a actual tangible risk calculation that, that can be translated into. Exactly. You know, and, and uh, that's, that's really valuable. The other part that goes along with that then is also how do you mitigate it? Right. Well, how do you track well, yeah. it at all? I mean, you're talking about an enormous amount of data. How do you um, know? I mean, I, I think a lot of people would be like, hell, we haven't looked at our logs like that. You know, I mean, how do you even process that? So we're in the telephony, we're a little bit fortunate in that phone calls come to us from our upstream carriers. So we have partners and we can get records from them of how many calls they sent us. And we know how many calls we actually processed. And the Delta is usually in the errors. Now, we do have to go through sometimes and correct the um, vendor and say that call really wasn't for us. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, but I mean, you still have it, to like... It, in some kind of machine way, troll all that data then. Absolutely. Um, and in our case, you know, you've got 30 different vendors who are providing you data in you know, at least 30 different right. formats. So you got to you know, daily, you got to download that data, suck it into a database and then cross-reference it with our own data to calculate the number that so went sideways. 30 different ETL transactions or more than transactions yeah. so paradigms, I guess. Or 31 if you include right, our own data, right? right? So we, we got to get our own data in there for the other right, half. Right, sure, it. sure. And so that, you know, when I talk to, you know, machine learning AI folks, they, they talk about, you know, the, the dirty secret of all that is that, you know, you spend the first two years building, you know, ETL and data ingestion, <laughs> and then finally you get to do something interesting with your data. Yeah, so for us, you know, it's fortunate we're, we're not in the AI with unstructured data. You know, it's much more of the uh, the structured format where we're able to 
you know, say, okay, th these columns map to those things and it's much, there's no heuristics. It's all straightforward algorithmic driven. So we're you know, very thankful in that regard that um, the vendors we have have good for uh, relatively good formats, clean formats. Uh, mostly it's, you know, CSV or you know, God forbid XML files that you've got to parse and load into some structured database. So, right. Right. And so, okay, so get back to the the uh, SRE stuff because that, yeah, that was so, a bit of a tangent, but well, it's and kind of still on that topic of the error budgets, right? Then it's a so how do we mitigate the risk, right? We have a new release going out. What do we want to do to make it so that it doesn't risk all of our phone calls? And that's where you get the concepts of canary releasing and feature flags and segmenting your users into different clusters, um, which are none of which do we do yet, but all of which are. Now, because of this discussion, something the team is very interested and excited to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, talk about, yeah, feature flagging is a big one. And I think some of these things, you know, a smaller company can do, smaller teams can do, and some, you know, are, are clearly out of scope for, you know, a, a limited sort of uh, team size. But, you know, uh, the feature flagging is a thing that, that makes a lot of sense for anyone that has multiple customers and is trying to uh, keep their release velocity up there. Um, it, it's also a great way just to get early feedback from customers, right? Um, we use our staging environments and give some selected users access to that to get their feedback. But if I could turn features on in production, I have a, a lot more stability in my production system because my CI CD pipeline isn't restarting it five times a day. Um, and, and so they're able to get that great experience and they can actually use the product all day long. Um, so that's that's something very beneficial that we're looking forward to, but haven't quite gotten to executing on yet. Sure, sure. And CICD, how, how long down the road are you there? Often hear a lot about CI, uh, not, not as many have accomplished CD. So we are not CD to production. We are CD into our staging environment. So a developer merges code in. Um, it goes through kind of the unit testing on the master branch. We then deploy that into our Kubernetes staging cluster. Um, depending upon what the change is, that might or might not cause kind of like massive changes. You know, if you change the wrong component and, we'll, yeah, we'll rebuild a whole lot of stuff. If you change the right components, just one container restarts. Um, so we're doing CI, CD um, into staging, and then we push into production about every week. So come Monday afternoon, we take a snapshot of staging. Say, here's all the images that we're running in Kube right now. Let's go put those into production. And, um, you know, we get to push those out. Right now, we're about once a week. We want to hit the once a day is kind of our target for 2019. Wow. Yeah. I'm. what's, geez, what's the path there? I mean, that's... That's intense. I mean, everybody wants to do that, you know, the, well done. Right. So, I mean, tell, tell the stories, man. I mean, that's, that's crazy. So, so the, the biggest thing for us right now is more automated testing, right? So we, we've spent a lot of time, a lot of effort on automated testing. Um, Got to give a shout out to Katie, one of our great QA engineers who has done a ton of work in this area. Um, and we're at a point now where we feel pretty good, but we still have about two hours worth of manual effort to certify a release. And I don't, we don't really want to have Katie spend two hours every day certifying a release. So we need to get that down more like a five to 10 minute runtime. Um, once we can get there, then I think we're, we're able to crank that number up to, you know, releasing most things every day. 
How big is the uh, team? Uh, you, you talk about it like it's not huge. So I'm curious. Um, 19 people, including myself, um, were split across two offices and a couple of remotes. How, how do you handle that remote uh, hybrid, you know, sort of co-location hybrid remote type of, of thing? I, I hear I hear a lot of folks talk about, you know, that, that hybrid is is actually the hardest team configuration. Um, I think that hybrid is probably the hardest. Um, you know, I think the easiest is fully co-located. The second easiest is fully distributed. Um, when you get into that hybrid, people are now a, well, you know, I, I'm expecting my interactions with one person to be one way, but another one to be another way. And that, that's hard. Yeah. Uh, for us, um, first of all, the skill sets that we have remote are different. And so if you need to go work with telephony people, you're going to be working with people who are remote. If you need to work with the front-end devs or QA or DevOps or you're kind of that middle API layer, they're going to be in the office with you. Um, so in some ways, it, it's isolated by skill set for us, and that, that's an artifact of where we can recruit talent, which is very hard to do, um, especially in the telephony space. Um, but then the other thing that we do is we do periodically get everybody together. Right. It's it's kind of important for that human connections. Even the two offices that we do have, we get everybody from one office to go visit the other one a couple of times. Right. A year. Right. Um, yeah. People talk about, you know, most of the leaders that I, I talk to in the hybrid environment, talk about you, everybody becomes sort of using the tool sets of fully remote. It just so happens that you, you've kind of got, you know, a lot of people who are remote, but in their own desk and happen to be next to you know, everybody else, because you have to do it or you lose that connectivity and, and your muscle memory and behaviors sort of all go easily down the path of, of co-located and you drop off your remote people. So um, I don't know if you've had that experience or which tools or techniques work the best. So I'll say we do not have that experience. I've heard a bunch of people say the exact same thing. And my thought is that, we're slightly different because I think it's, it's where that skill set divide, right? If I've got, you know, a UI issue, if I got a screen that's not rendering, I don't have to open that up in the Slack channel. I can turn around and tap the guy on the shoulder. Um, we also have, you know, our couple of remote guys are really senior and they're really sharp. What we have in the offices is more of a spectrum from a couple of people. This is their first job into those senior people. Mentoring is immensely hard remote. It's hard to see that guy struggling even through the daily standups. And so having that same office, A, really helps you mentor them because you can see them, but it also helps mentor them because they're more comfortable looking and say, oh, okay, I don't see his headphones on. I can go ask him. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like, unless you can actively manage accessibility and, you know, sort of onlineness and all those things. And I, I know in our own environments, you know, I had to play with different things because, you know, I'm the guy that's like, is he on the recording? You know, is what's he doing? And I had like LED lights on my desk and I coded, you know, sort of different statuses like, no, I'm, I'm listening to something. This is really important. You know, <laughs> don't call me right now. So. I mean, in our offices, we do what's called the headphone rule, right? If someone's got their headphones on, you, know, you send them a Slack message to say, when you've got a chance, yeah. ping me. Um, but yeah, it's... That, that, that's kind of for us. Um, you, you'd asked about tools as well. Um, we are big users of Slack. Um, all of our engineers are on Slack, and, and we're pretty much responsible on Slack all the time. Um, we also do um, Slack calls 
right? You're in the you're in the system, and it's like our point is not getting across. Let's hop on a Slack mm-hmm. call real quick because it'll be faster to talk it out. Um, now that Slack has added screen share, we've kind of stopped on the Google Hangouts for screen share even. Um, so it's, you know, hop in. Hey, can you see my screen? Here we go. Let's let's work through yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What we we also found is like you know, an internal heuristic was if you can't solve this in five minutes of Slack call because it's it's just not going to work. And you, you'd see like these half hour long Slack missives, you know, paragraph upon paragraph, and it's like, yo, just stop, just pick pick the thing yeah. up. And we seem to humans like all the we, you know, seem to just, especially engineers, you know, just go to, I'm just going to type forever, you know, and I don't know why the call becomes, uh, if you're not careful, the call becomes hard to make. I feel like it's inertia, right? I'm in this mode, I'm thinking this mode, and I'm not thinking about changing my mode, right? So I think that that's part of it. And then part of it is also kind of the interruption, right? It's it's, it's asynchronous, right? I'll type a message and they're going to read it when right. they get to, even though I'm in the middle of a discussion. It's obvious that they're right there with me, but what do you, um, yeah, it's, what do you recommend, uh, you know, or, or just, uh, learnings from and, and interest in the, the telephony space, you know, I mean, it's changed so much. And now, like you just said, you've got all these apps that are making calls and everything. So, you know, and yet you're, you're building cutting edge SaaS tools, you know, in, in telephony, how does all of that fit together? Um, well, I will say that the one thing that I've, I've learned the most doing telephony is I'm amazed phone calls actually work. Um, <laughs> I, I've, you know, I, I've talked to a guy who did credit card processing the other week and he's like, you know, I, I, at times I'm amazed my card actually goes through just because of how complicated the systems are. Phone systems are the same way. Probably every system we've ever worked on is the same way, right? It's, it gets so complicated. Um, but that, Really, for the communications part, that's the interesting part is how they all come together, right? What we do is business communication. So it's the public face of a business, which worldwide people still tend to phone call, although SMS and chat are there. And that's part of the Avoxy suite is we want to bring all of those channels of communication together so that your sales team, your support team, it doesn't matter the channel the customer's on, you're able to be there and service them. And that's kind of the product that we're, we're working towards. You know, something like a Slack, something like a Google Hangouts, those are really towards internal collaboration and not quite the public face. Right. Um, and while there's some plugins that do that in Slack and there's some connectors that Google builds for you, that's not their first class citizen. They're not there to target that outside world. Mm-hmm. That's really our first step is dealing with the outside coming in. And then our secondary thought is then internal collaboration. Right. Which we still support but it's not kind of the primary thrust of our right product. right so you have to think about the like you said 31 different providers of all the ways that the customer can be getting to me as the the business user from the outside and um i suppose it's easy to forget about <laughs> those things that, you know yeah we only exist to work on slack because you know there are people like you guys that are, <laughs> are bringing us customers to talk to so well, well played. Well played. Yeah. Well, uh, Randy, you know, it's, it's good to, to have you on, man. Thanks. Thanks for the insights uh, about the engineering team. And, uh, Certainly. you know, it's, it's uh, been a lot of fun. And, you know, if you ever have a, a gap in your schedule in the future, I'd be happy to hop back in. We can talk some more. Absolutely. Appreciate it, man. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. 
We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.